Well, good morning, church. How are we doing today? Good. Good morning. Man, I'm excited to be with you all. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Chase Rodriguez, and my wife Allie and I have been attending Hallows for about five, six years now. Uh, if you see me on stage before, it's likely been with a guitar in hand or a bass guitar in hand. Uh, or if you go far enough back, you've been playing the drum set. Uh, but I'm glad we have guys now that can keep us on beat. It's always, it's always good. Um, prior to COVID as well, my, uh, my wife served as a kids ministry lead at what was then the Fremont Expression. So you might have seen her there as well. But this is my first time serving in this capacity. Um, so I'm excited to be here. I was honored and privileged when I was asked to preach with you guys. So really excited. I'm also a little nervous. Also a little nervous. I think it's okay, right? Uh, I was talking to a buddy earlier this week, and he said, hey, if you feel nervous, just uh, picture the congregation naked. So, uh, so it's, it's working so far, so that's great. That's great. <laughs> that's good. Hey, uh, we'll, be, we'll be landing in John chapter 8 this morning. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles, uh, open up to John chapter 8. We're actually going to be looking at the very last verse in chapter 7. Uh, but actually, most Bibles kind of squish that verse into chapter 8, because there is kind of something going on here with this text that we're going to talk about here in a moment. Nevertheless, John chapter 8, this is the story of the woman caught in adultery. Story of the woman caught in adultery. It's a story that we all know, probably, a story that's pretty famous in the church, a story that's very known for good reason. I love this story. It's been, I've been very impacted by this story. Um, so here's the story of the woman uh, caught in adultery. So if you're in your Bibles, John chapter 8, I'd love to read the story for us. Here's how it goes. They each went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to Jesus, and he sat down, and he taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women, so what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to question him, Jesus stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So he stood up and he said to her, Woman, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And, Jesus, and she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Before we jump into this text today, I actually want you to notice something in your Bible. So if you have your Bible or if you have your phone open either way, uh, if you have any modern translation, sorry, if you have KJV, it won't, probably won't be there, but if you have any modern translation, ESV, NIV, CSB, you'll notice there's actually brackets around this text. Does anyone notice that? There's double brackets around this text. And not only that, but if you look right before the header here, you should see something like how it says in my Bibles, the earliest manuscripts do not contain John 7, 53 through 8, 11. Does anyone see that? The early, okay, yeah, yeah, thanks. I'm a school teacher, so raising hands is good. Just don't speak without raising your hand or else I'll send you to the principal, okay. So um, the earliest manuscripts don't contain this story. I wanna talk for a moment about what that means. I think it's actually really important because in some Protestant churches, this passage is not preached. Some people actually believe this should not be in the Bible itself, but this is the story we love. We know the story. We love the story. So I want to talk for a brief moment, kind of teach for a moment. I want to give you some points around what does this mean that the earliest manuscripts do not contain the story? What does that mean for us? Give us some ideas around that. 
before we actually you know, start preaching on the text itself. So uh, to, to put it plainly, as plainly as I can, the story of the woman caught in adultery is not original to the Gospel of John. John did not write this story. We know that, we have fair, fair certainty about that because our earliest Greek manuscripts, which date back to the second century, the earliest Greek manuscripts we have the Gospel of John, they don't contain the story. They simply skip from what would be 752 to 812. Now chapter and verse markings were added in later, so that wouldn't have been a weird kind of, it would have been a smooth transition, but this story doesn't appear in the earliest manuscripts. In fact, it's not until the fifth century AD, centuries later, until this text appears in manuscripts in the text of the Gospels. So what scholars are fairly certain on, are fairly unanimous on, is that this text is not original to the Gospel of John. It was added in centuries later by scribes. But I want to submit to you all today that this text that we know and love is not primarily the product of a fifth century scribe with a knack for storytelling. It's the product of the inspiration and the providence of God. So I want to give you three ideas to kind of help orient us around that thought. I'm not just going to leave you with, oh, it's not original gospel, John. I'm going to preach on it now. I want to give us three ideas maybe to help reassure us around that. And these will be on the screen here. I don't know if you're a note taker. You might want to not jot this down. Number one, what's fascinating to think about is even though this story is not original in the Gospel of John, it is likely historical. What does that mean? The same scholars who are certain that this story is not original in the Gospel of John believe that this story happened in the life of Jesus. This story, as it is written here, happened in the life and ministry of Jesus. Even though this story doesn't appear until the fifth century in our manuscripts, there's actually extra biblical evidence, meaning texts outside the Bible dating all the way back to the second century that shows us this story was known in the church, this story was used as scripture in the church, it was appealed to as authoritative, they knew it, they believed it to be historical, and we should as well. There's no reason to doubt that this story didn't actually happen in the life of Jesus. In fact, in John's Gospel, in chapter 20, verse 30, he says himself, there are many other things Jesus did in his ministry that are not recorded in this book. So I think it's very uh, acceptable to assume that this text, the story of the woman caught in adultery, was one of those stories. One which John himself knew of but did not write down. One which did not appear in the biblical text until the fifth century. Uh, but one which was used by Christians for centuries prior because it did happen, it did take place in the life of Jesus, and God had been using it for centuries prior. Not only is it likely historical, but it's doctrinally sound, and that's really important because as we look at the text today, there's no piece of theology that I'm going to take from this text, no piece of meaning or application that's not attested to elsewhere in Scripture. In fact, the central themes of the story, Jesus reestablishing the law on the basis of grace, Jesus siding with sinners, Jesus forgiving on his own authority, Jesus encouraging repentance, all these things are central to who Jesus is. So it's not like, oh, this is not original John, and it also has some wacky theology, right? What, the, how it portrays Jesus is, is the central character of who Jesus is, and ultimately for the early church, doctrinally sound texts were actually a criteria for canonization. That leads me to my third point. Not only is this text likely historical, not only is it doctrinally sound, but it's ultimately canonical. Meaning it was ultimately finalized into the text that we call the New Testament, the 27 books that we call our New Testament. There's a man named Jerome, who's a fourth century theologian, 
And Jerome translated the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament into the Latin, a Latin translation. It's called the Vulgate. And Jerome, this is important because the Jerome's translation is often thought to be the first Bible, the first full Bible. And Jerome's Latin translation became the standard mainstream authoritative text in the church for the next thousand years. And in Jerome's translation, we have this story, the woman caught in adultery in John chapter eight. So if anything, church, I think this should widen our understanding of what God's inspiration means. If God's inspiration boils down to simply authorship, I think that's a very narrow view of God, right? The fact is, this did happen in the life of Christ. It's definitely doctrinally sound, and it's ultimately canonical. So let's be assured in that today. I I just didn't want to preach on this text and have you wondering, was this not in the early manuscripts? What's going on? So I hope that helps us and reassures us as we jump into the text. So let's do that, and would you voice a prayer with me as we jump into the text itself? Father God, thank you for this beautiful story, God. Thank you for this magnificent story that um, shows clearly who you are. It reveals your grace to us, and I pray that we would be able to have open minds and hearts as we see our sin convicted in this story, but we're also redirected to see you and to see your grace. So give us grace as we open this text today and, and give us eyes to see what you want us to see. In Jesus' name, amen. I've titled this message today, The Stones We Throw. The Stones We Throw. I believe today in our culture, uh, our culture in many ways is defined by moral issues, right? Everything's political. Everything's political. Our culture is defined by more. It seems like every week, every two weeks, there's a new moral issue in the headlines that Christians, and we, you know, we as Christians, we as Americans, we feel like we have to engage the issue. We engage the issue, we form an opinion, we take a side, we, we voice our opinion often in ways that insulate us within our group and often can demonize other people. We point the finger, we label people, we pick our political tribe, and we somehow convince ourselves that that makes us more virtuous I think as we look at this text today, this text convicts us of the false narratives of our culture, which is this self-righteous Phariseeism. It convicts us of self-righteous Phariseeism that we often perpetuate as Christians. And I think another thing it does is it help, helps us to redirect our focus on Jesus. And as we do that, we'll be hum- our self-righteousness will be humiliated and we will be disarmed from the stones that we throw. So track with me, I'm gonna start here at 753 and work through 8-2, which kind of set the scene of this narrative here of this story. It says they each went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. So those, these opening verses kind of set the scene. Jesus is at the temple, he's teaching a gathering of people, it says all the people, I imagine hundreds of people going to meet with Jesus, take time out of their morning routine to meet with Jesus. It's not the Sabbath. They don't have to be at the temple, but they're at the temple. These are likely people, Jews, Gentiles, saints, sinners, that have been witnessing Jesus' miracles, his ministry, and message throughout Jesus' ministry up until this point. So far in the Gospel of John, Jesus has performed many miracles. In fact, the first half of the Gospel of John is often called the Book of Signs because how many miracles Jesus performs. So far, he's walked on water. He's turned water to wine. He's healed paralytic men. He's he's fed 5,000 people with only a few loaves, and that's certainly captivated the hearts and minds of those who have 
been around him, that this Jesus guy, there's something about him, this Jesus guy seems like God himself, but also his ministry. Jesus had a way of being with people and of crossing social and ethnic and political divides to love people. We have this beautiful story in chapter four where Jesus crosses the divide to Samaria when no one else would, when no Jew in their right mind would go to Samaria, yet he thinks it absolutely necessary to be with this woman at the well, not to shame her, not to convert her even, but to love her to notice her and to be with her. And so that's certainly captivated their minds that Jesus has this kind of way of embodying grace and mercy across these lines. But not only his ministry, his message, well, he's one that teaches with authority. He teaches with authority. He speaks hard truths as well. We see in chapter three when Jesus says to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, which if Jesus ever says truly, truly, I say to you, he's about to say a hard truth. Truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. He also says after he feeds the 5,000, uh, the Jews are grumbling about some of the things Jesus is doing and some of the things he's saying. He says to the Jews, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of my flesh, forget the loaves, unless you eat of my flesh, you have no life in you. So these people are here at the temple because they've been witnessing these things, Jesus' miracles, his ministry of grace, but also the way he teaches with authority. And so here they are at the temple, leaning in to hear what Jesus has to say. So let's look at verse three, going through verse five. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. Placing her in his midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to sell such women, so what do you say? So all of a sudden, this teaching is interrupted. Scribes and Pharisees are not there listening to Jesus. They interrupt Jesus, I think it's so like, ironic, teacher. They interrupt his teaching, call him teacher. By the way, Nicodemus called him teacher as well, and in the end could not accept him as savior. Teacher, they say. Scribes and Pharisees, by the way, these are the religious experts, right? They believe they're the teachers. They know everything. These are the religious experts in the law, and apparently they've caught a woman in the act of adultery, and it's interesting, it says the act of adultery. Not just they heard she was an adulterer, they caught her in the act of adultery. They might have even dragged her there naked. And it says they placed her in the midst of Jesus. The Greek actually says they stood her upright in the middle of the crowd and of Jesus. So here's this naked, helpless woman now standing, probably weeping in her shame, in the middle of these hundreds of people, and they're gazing at her to see what would happen. So all of a sudden, this early morning devotional has kind of turned into a courtroom. The scribes and the Pharisees are kind of positioning themselves as prosecutors, and they're accusing this woman who's kind of now on trial. And even Jesus is inadvertently made to be the judge when they kind of give him the authority to determine the fate of this woman. And even those who are were teach, were listening to Jesus' teaching at the temple are still there as spectators waiting to see how this will unfold. It's important to note that the scribes and Pharisees, they, do, they are citing clear laws in the Torah. There are clear laws in the Torah, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and elsewhere in the Torah, that command adulterers to be stoned to death. Right, they're not making that up. That's, those are real laws. Stoning in the Old Testament in ancient Israel was a form of capital punishment, whereby the one accused would be uh, sentenced and dragged outside the city gates, buried up to their neck, and then everyone in the community, starting with the two witnesses, would hurl stones at them until they were dead. It's an absolutely brutal and humiliating form of death. And by the way, it wasn't just adulterers. It wasn't just adulterers. It was idolaters. It was blasphemers. 
multiple other sins that people committed led to this sentencing of adultery. But it's good to keep in mind they are citing clear laws in the Torah. So Jesus is in a bit of a, of a, of a predicament, right? On the one hand, if he doesn't stone her, then he's breaking the law of Moses, right? Isn't, isn't this supposed to be the Jewish Messiah? Isn't, didn't Jesus say in his own words, I've came to fulfill the law, not abolish it? So if he doesn't stone her, he breaks the law of Moses. But if he does stone her, two things happen. On the one hand, uh, he uproots everything he's been about. Grace, mercy, and forgiveness towards sinners and lawbreakers. Calling sinners, befriending outcasts, eating with tax collectors. This is everything he's been about in his ministry. Is he about to uproot that right here? Not only that, but if he actually chooses to stone her, he actually breaks Roman law. See, in Roman law, Romans were actually fairly pluralistic in their society, meaning they're actually fairly hospitable to a wide range of different religions and religious beliefs. But what was absolutely illegal was to carry out a public execution on purely religious grounds without Roman jurisdiction. That's actually why Jesus was killed on a Roman cross. He wasn't stoned to death, right? So he's in a bit of a predicament. Is he gonna break the law of Moses or break the Roman law? Either way, it's a catch-22. What's interesting is as we keep reading, we learn the motive of the Pharisees. So if you look at me with verse six, we learn what's the reason they're doing this. It says in verse six, this they said to test him. They said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. So why did they do this? Why did they go through the trouble to find a woman caught in adultery, to drag her into the mist, to interrupt Jesus' teaching at the temple? Why did they do this? Well, because they want to trap Jesus. That's their motive, and we have to realize, friends, they don't love the law. Pharisees don't love the law. They hate Jesus, right? They don't care about the woman and her sin. Their, their motive is not a genuine ethical concern. Their motive is they hate Jesus, their motive is they want to trap Jesus. They don't care about justice. They're not motivated by justice. I think, you know, I think another thing they're motivated by is I think they want to appear to the crowd as if they care about justice. That's why they, they, they come up and they, they interrupt him and call him teacher and they say, we're on the side of Mosaic law, but what do you say, right? They want to posit themselves as morally superior in front of this crowd. They want to appear as if they care about justice, but they don't care about justice. Man, our society is obsessed. Our society is obsessed with showing everybody else how virtuous we are, aren't we? We're obsessed with showing everybody how righteous we are. We love to appear as if we care about justice, regardless as if, if justice is served in our communities. We do this in our own individual lives, even small businesses nowadays. I can't walk by one small business in my town that I live in without them telling me on their window some moral stance they have, right? And it's great for them, why? Because so many people walk by and they get to see what we stand for, right? Even major corporations, I was driving about a year ago in Atlanta, Georgia, and I saw a big billboard. It was from Uber. You know, you guys know Uber? Okay, Uber. And Uber had this billboard, and they said something to the effect of, it's, I'm kind of botching it, but to the effect of, if you're a racist, delete our app. And I was like, wow, that'll get them, right? That'll get them, man. The racists that drive by that are going to be like, all right, guys, got to delete Uber, right? <laughs> no, they don't. Uber, do we really believe, I mean, do we really believe Uber they're concerned with justice? 
You know what's a good thing about a billboard, though? Everyone sees it. Everybody sees it. We love to appear righteous to others, and sometimes the way that we try to appear virtuous to others, that can actually mask the injustice that we commit in our lives. Jesus said to the Pharisees, he called them out in Matthew 23, 28, when he said, outwardly you appear righteous. You appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Their lawlessness is actually further evidenced by the fact that when you actually look at the laws themselves in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, which we'll do here in a second, they're not just misusing the law to trap Jesus, they're actually violating the law. They're actually violating, so let's look at Leviticus 20, chapter 10. And I want you guys to see what's missing here in this scene, in this trial with this woman. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Here's what Deuteronomy 22.22 says. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. What's missing? The man, yes, nice. The man is missing. Nobody commits adultery alone, and therefore no one is sentenced alone. What we know about the Torah, and actually what we know about Jewish interpretation of the Torah, is that without both parties, the trial is unjust. The trial is unjust. In fact, if they caught her in the act of adultery, they must have seen the man there as well, but they dragged her there, right? They don't care about justice. They don't care about the law. They care about appearing righteous to others, and they care about hating Jesus and trapping Jesus. So let's see see how Jesus responds. Read with me verses six through eight. And they said this to test him that they might have a charge to bring against him. Here's how he responds. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And they continued to question him. So So he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. It's kind of weird, right? So how does Jesus respond? They ask him this question. They make this claim about the law. And he bends down. He starts writing in the sand. Now this is weird. There's not some cultural explanation I can give you for why that would have been normal back then. It's just kind of weird for us. No, this would have been the Pharisees were likely confused and weirded out just as we are reading this text. They probably took that as ignoring them. It's a non-answer. It's disrespectful. I'd be like if you came up to me after the service. And you said, hey, you know, Chase, I have a question about your sermon. And, uh, you know, I hear you. I see you. It's just me and you. We're talking. The first thing that I do in response, I take out my phone and I start texting. All right. Some of you guys are like, man, I know somebody who does that all the time to me. But uh, it would have been taken as extremely disrespectful. And we know it's a non-answer because you might do what they, keep, what they do, which is they keep questioning him. Jesus, we didn't come to see your drawing skills. We came to get a straightforward answer to a a straightforward question. So it says they keep on asking him. So Jesus does stand up. Maybe he wipes off his hands from the dirt and he says to them this famous line, you who is without sin among you, be first to throw a stone. And once more, I think as a way of letting them know he said all that he has to say. He bends down and he writes in the dirt. For thousands of years, Christians have speculated about what exactly Jesus wrote in the dirt. I'm looking at George because I promised George an answer. I'm still waiting for the Holy Spirit to tell me what did he write in the dirt, I don't know. Um, for thousands of years, they speculate, and I say speculated, not debated, because the reality is we don't know. Right? The reality is we don't know what Jesus wrote in the dirt. 
One practical reason I think Jesus bent down and wrote in the sand that I think must be mentioned was he's beginning to get the attention off the woman. See, prior to Jesus bending down the stoop in the dirt, all of the eyes of the hundreds of people there, scribes, Pharisees, all these people at the temple, Jesus himself, were staring at this naked, helpless woman in her shame who's standing in the middle of the crowd, gazing upon her in disapproval, gazing upon her in disgust. And what Jesus is doing by bending down to write in the dirt is he's beginning to intercede for her. He's beginning to bear her embarrassment because everyone's eyes that were focused on this woman is now redirected to Jesus who's doodling in the dirt. So I think it's important that we mention that Jesus is advocating for her already. But don't worry, don't worry, George. I do believe there's a deeper significance here. I believe that there's a profoundly powerful and prophetic illustration that Jesus is making, not in what he wrote, but in the fact of his bending down and writing. I believe that the movement of Jesus by bending down and writing and standing up and bending down again to write, regardless of what he wrote, actually is saying something prophetic about who Jesus is. To understand what I'm saying, let's open up to the book of Exodus. Exodus 19, this is where uh, God initially gave the people the law of Moses. Exodus 19, and by the way, if you don't want to flip, we will have some verses up on the screen here for you as well. Exodus 19, the Israelites have been making their way through the wilderness. They've just been delivered from the hands of captivity in Egypt, and they're making their way through, and now they're at base camp at Mount Sinai. Now, Mount Sinai is famous for what? Mount Sinai is famous for the giving of the law So let's go back to the moment where God actually gave them this law that the Pharisees are citing, right? So look with me at verse 19, chapters 10 and 11. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Now skip down to me, verse 17. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. Verse 19. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder, and the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. The Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. So at the giving of the law, it mentions multiple times that God, what, came down. God descended. God came down just as Jesus stooped down in John chapter 8. But not only did God descend or come down, but look what it says in 31, 18, chapter 31, verse 18. When Moses had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave to Moses the two tablets of testimony, tablets of stone. Here's the important part, written with the finger of God. So not only did God come down, but he wrote with his finger, and what he wrote was the law of Moses. Exodus 32, 16 says the tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God. In Exodus 32, we know that while Moses was atop the mountain, what were the Israelites doing? They were fashioning all sorts of idols, right? They were committing idolatries and all sorts of various sins. God knows what other sorts of sins. And there's this moment where Moses is coming down the mountain and he's burning with anger. And out of his anger, what does he do? He throws the tablets down and they break. Ten commandments, they break. Now this is important because when we look at chapter 34, verse 1, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two new tablets of stone like the first, and I will, what, write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. 
And as we keep reading in verse five and following, we actually see that the Lord descends a second time. The Lord stooped down a second time to write the law again with his finger. So what's the point? In response to these Jewish experts testing Jesus on matters of the law, Jesus is revealing himself as the one who wrote it in the first place. Jesus is the God who descended on Sinai with fire and smoke. Jesus is the author and giver of the law. It's not a matter of what was being written. It's a matter of who was writing. Man, if they only knew who they were testing. If they only knew who they were testing. Whether or not they knew, ultimately I don't believe they quite grasped what was in their midst. And Jesus doing this, they kept badgering him. They wanted an answer to their question. Ultimately, ultimately it says that they left after what they heard. So let's look at what they heard from Jesus. Again in verse seven. And they continued to ask him and he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be first to throw a stone at her. It's important to recognize here, Jesus is on the side of the Mosaic law. We've already established the Pharisees don't care about the law. They're actually violating it. What's important to note here with this phrase of Jesus is that Jesus is siding with the Mosaic law. He doesn't say don't stone her. It's not what he says. He doesn't say don't stone her. He says, he essentially says stone her, but only do so if you know in your conscience that you don't equally deserve to be stoned with her. As St. Augustine points out in his homily on this text, the Pharisees essentially had two options. Either let this woman go, drop your charges, or you yourselves receive the penalty with her. Right, I I mentioned that it's more than just adultery that deserves stoning, right? Yes, she was breaking the sixth law, but Jesus was breaking the first. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. In their act of self-righteousness, they were testing God in their midst, they were positing themselves as God. They're equal, if not more, uh, worthy of deserving death and execution as this woman. So Jesus says, go ahead, stoner, but only do so if you don't know in your conscience that you don't equally deserve to be stoned along with her. So they drop their stones, right? They drop their stones. I believe the meaning of this phrase, sometimes this phrase is kind of a axiomatic in our culture, or it's an axiom, right? People in our culture kind of know this idea of throwing stones. And I think it's, a, it's actually misinterpreted sometimes. I don't think the moral here is don't judge. I, I think sometimes that's what people think this phrase means, let him who is without sin be first to cast stone. I think that's actually the, the wrong the wrong meaning. It's not don't judge. In fact, as Christians, we have to make moral judgments all the time. We ha- in order to be discerning in the world, in order to live as a holy and righteous people in a sinful world, we have to make moral judgments upon sin- sinful lifestyles and behaviors and actions and ideas and worldviews. We have to judge. The meaning here is not don't judge. I don't believe that that's what Jesus is condemning, simply judging. In fact, Jesus himself made a moral judgment against the woman when he said, go and sin no more. He actually was making a judgment that she is in fact a sinner, she is in fact a lawbreaker, she does need to turn from her sinful lifestyle. The meaning is not don't judge. In fact, I would say that's a false narrative of our culture. That's a false narrative of our culture, don't judge me. Not only in our culture is it don't judge me, don't judge me in what I do in the privacy of my life, it's you have to approve of me, right? 
Not only that you can't judge me, but you have to approve of me, you have to agree with me, and if you don't, I don't wanna associate you, and if you associate with you, and if you don't, then get ready for the stones coming at your head, right? I've seen multiple people, uh, for those of you on social media, I'm on social media, which I probably shouldn't be, but uh, social media, it's a toxic place, and I've seen multiple people, even Christians, I've made note of it in my mind as I've been preparing this sermon, uh, following the overturning of Roe v. Wade, and I've seen multiple Christians online say something like this. If you agree with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, or even on the other side, I've seen it as well, if you disagree with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, then unfriend me, right? Unfollow me. If you don't agree with me, I don't even want to associate with you, not even on a social media platform. That's Pharisaism. That's not Jesus. That's not Jesus. Jesus ate with sinners and lawbreakers, not because he agreed with them. Jesus fellowshiped with tax collectors, not because he approved of them. He did it because he loved them. In John chapter eight, we have to see Jesus sided with the woman, not because the woman didn't sin. He didn't side with her saying, I'm siding with you because adultery is okay. He's a siding with her because he loves her. He's a choosing to associate with her. He's choosing to advocate with her, not because he approves of her, but because he loves her. He's jealous for her, right? It's a false narrative of our culture. I believe that what Jesus is calling out is something much more ingrained in the attitude and disposition of the Pharisees. Self-righteousness. I believe the fundamental thing that Jesus is putting to shame here in the life of the Pharisees is self-righteousness. It's deeper than just judging people. It's an attitude, it's a way of being in the world, not just an action. Merriam-Webster defines self-righteousness this way. Being convinced of one's own righteousness, especially in contrast with the actions and beliefs of others, narrow-mindedly moralistic. Another psychologist says that people who are self-righteous view themselves as morally superior to others. This feeling of superiority is often based on one's own evaluation of being more intelligent, more aligned with God, more caring, or more virtuous compared to others. So self-righteousness is this attitude of moral superiority, and it manifests itself often as an incessant, constant scrutiny and criticism of everybody else. Self-righteous people feel righteous to the degree by which they make others feel unrighteous. They feel a sense of validation to the degree by which they invalidate others. They feel a sense of moral superiority to the degree by which they point out the moral failings of others. I mentioned a moment ago this passage is not primarily about judging. I think what, di- I think what differentiates self-righteous condemnation of others from simply judging is self-righteous condemnation, condemnation of others focuses on the person. It condemns the person, while merely Christian moral judgment focuses on their actions. Even in our culture, focuses on their ideas. I think one of the reasons in our culture that hate is spewed so freely is because people cannot differentiate between people and their actions or people and their ideas. And so when we hate an idea, we hate a worldview, we hate a political stance, we hate Here's a pol- That's Siri. We, we hate a policy, we hate a political stance. What happens is we end up hating the person who holds it, right? So this is the reason why we so freely hate Joe Biden, or we freely hate Donald Trump, or we freely hate this congressperson, or hate this Supreme Court justice, or hate this person on our Twitter feed, or hate this person in our workplace, because we're projecting our feelings of fear, hate, and disgust for them, 
or for, for their ideas onto them as human beings, which in turn makes it virtually impossible to love them. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus does not treat us on the basis of our sin. If he did, we'd all be damned. He treated us on the basis of, our, of his love for us. He, God sent his son Jesus not because he approved of me, not because he agrees with me, because he loves me. Often our failure to differentiate between people and their ideas, I think in our culture, leads to labeling and name calling. We love to just label and name call our political enemies. One of my former professors says, name calling is always the beginning of a dehumanization of a person or group. It dehumanizes people. It categorizes them. It makes a caricature of them. If you ever wonder why Christian colonialists on the one hand could maintain that God created all people in his image, and on the other hand, treat African slaves with such disdain and disgust, Here's why, because animals aren't created in the image of God. So when they label them and believe that they're animals, they rid themselves of the responsibility of imagining them created in the image of God. It's easy to justify intolerance toward a pro-choice person if you label them as a baby murderer, right? If you label someone as a baby murderer, it's easy to justify your intolerance toward them. It's easy to justify intolerance toward a pro-life person, or it's easy to justify disassociating with a pro-life person if you label them as anti-women. When we label, name-call, and therefore dehumanize others, we rid ourselves of the responsibility to treat them as human beings created in the image of God. By the way, it's not about being right or wrong. It's not, it's not about being right or wrong. You might be on the right side of the abortion debate. You might be on the right side of the human sexuality debate. Your views on race in America might be more educated and more profound and more closer and aligned with God's worldview than the people on the other side. But how we treat those who are on the other side of the aisle says as much about what we believe about God as the view we hold itself. Let me say that again, how we treat those, how we engage with those, how we converse with those, how we dialogue with those, how we fellowship with those, how we relate to those who disagree with us most, tells them all they need to know about us and who we believe about God, more than the view we hold itself. Guess what, the Pharisees, they were actually right. They were right in their moral assessment of the woman. She's a sinner, she's a lawbreaker, and she's an adulteress. But just because we're right, church, doesn't mean that Jesus isn't always on the other side of the stones that we throw. Let me put that a different way. We might be on the right side of the debate, but Jesus is always on the other side of the stones that we throw. It's not about being right. We might be right. Our view might reflect a biblical worldview. It might reflect God's heart more than the other side. But Jesus is always on the other side of the stones that we throw, always. So the question becomes, how do we counteract this sense of self-righteousness, this self-righteousness that so easily takes root in all of our lives, this sense of moral superiority and stone-throwing that takes root in all of our lives? There's certainly many answers to this, but I can think of just one in light of this text, and it's actually doing something that the Pharisees accidentally did. Make Jesus judge. Francis Chan said that self-righteous people are simply comparing themselves to the wrong person. See, up against the woman, these Pharisees could convince themselves of their own righteousness, but when they made Jesus judge that morning, 
When they made Jesus judge that morning, all of their self-righteousness was humiliated. When we're so focused on the speck in others' eyes, we can ignore the log in our own, but when we put our focus on Jesus, when we make Jesus the judge of our life, when we allow Jesus to ascend the judgment seats of our hearts, he puts all of our self-righteousness to shame. Compared with Jesus, as Paul says in Romans 3, no one is righteous. No one is good. No one understands. No one seeks God, not even one. When we think about our self-righteous ways, it's not about just, looking, about just looking in the mirror. It's about looking at Jesus. When he is the standard of our life, all of our self-righteous tendencies are utterly humiliated. We are totally disarmed from the stones we hurl upon others. Let's read verse nine. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman before him. With their sin exposed to them, their self-righteousness was put to shame. They were no longer able to move forward with the stoning, and they walked away. It's difficult to interpret exactly what state of mind they left with. I do not believe these Pharisees left with acknowledging Jesus as Savior, but they did leave with an acknowledgement of their own sin. They left with a newfound acknowledgement of their own sin, and as we know, acknowledging our sin is necessary to acknowledging Jesus as Savior. So here we are, they've left her, and it says Jesus is alone with the woman, the only one who's truly without sin among them, is standing alone with the woman. And once more, this helpless, unnamed woman is the center of attention, but it's no longer the eyes of self-righteousness. It's no longer the eyes of moral disapproval gaining down on her, gazing down on her. It's the eyes of mercy. Let's read verses 10 and 11. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus' first words to her are a question He's inviting her to articulate what she perhaps cannot yet believe with her eyes. She says, no one, Lord. My accusers are gone. The charges have been dropped. There's no one left to condemn me. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. The only one in history who's truly without sin, the only one in history whose eye there has not even found one speck, the only one in history who is truly holier than thou does not throw a stone. But why? Why does Jesus choose mercy? I, I don't believe, as I mentioned before, it's because Jesus is easy on sin. The moral of the story is not, let's go keep on sinning because there's no condemnation, right? It's not because Jesus is easy on sin. It's not because adultery is okay. By the way, this is the guy in Matthew 5 who said, if you even look upon a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. It's not because he's easy on sin. No, Jesus could justly say this because in a few chapters' time, Jesus himself would be accused and essentially stoned on her behalf. This is the gospel, right? So as we look at this text, yes, we are so often the Pharisees who arrogantly throw stones at people in order to boost our own sense of moral superiority, but ultimately, friends, we are all the women we are guilty in our sin, but the good news of the gospel is that while we were standing tall in our sin, God stooped down in the form of Jesus, was beaten, betrayed, and executed on our behalf so that Jesus could justly say to you and justly say to me, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. 
The sins that we've committed, neither do I condemn you. The stones that we've thrown and the stones that we do throw, neither do I condemn you. But as we see in this text, right, the story does not end with a proclamation of grace, it ends with a command. Go and from now on sin no more. Jesus leads with grace and follows it with a command because grace is what transforms hearts to live into the truth of God's word. Encountering the grace of God empowers us to live as new people. I believe that the majority of us in this room have experienced that grace. I believe the majority of us in this room and perhaps watching online as well, we have experienced this unimaginable, amazing grace of God, which says to us, neither do I condemn you. I believe we've experienced that, and yet we turn around and we condemn people. It would have been unimaginable for this woman to have experienced this grace of Jesus and then turn around and pick up stones. That's what we do, right? That's what we do. So church, here's my call to us. We can either be a people who spend eternity in heaven shoulder to shoulder with those whom we couldn't tolerate on earth. Or we can choose to be a people who bring heaven to earth by the way that we embody reconciliation and humility in a hostile world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this message, Lord. Even though I always go over time, I know you forgive me, Lord. There's no condemnation for me. Thank you, God, for this message. Um, um, man, it's just, it's so humbling, Lord. And I pray that you would humble us in the way that we interact with people that we disagree with. It's such a toxic thing in our culture, the way that we condemn people and label them and point the finger at them. But I pray, Lord, that our eyes would remain focused on you, that you would be our comparison so that we might be humbled in our sin and that, that our self-righteous might be put to shame and that we might drop the stones that we throw. Thank you, God, for your grace, even amidst the stones that we throw, even amidst our self-righteous ways, Lord, there's grace. There's mercy for us. So I pray as we continue in worship, we might be able to uh, marvel in that grace and mercy, that we might be able to humble ourselves and exalt you as we continue in worship and as we continue about our weeks. So thank you, Lord, for this message. Thank you for everyone here. Pray a blessing over the rest of this time together. In Jesus' name. Amen.